question and a little story to share with you guys. If you can just turn your imaginations on with me. Do you remember when your parents would ask you to clean your room? I don't know about you, but this was the worst thing that could ever happen to my eight-year-old life. Terrible. I, I mean, anytime my mom would ask me to clean my room, I was always in the middle of something, you know, something really important. And so imagine with me a scenario. I'm in the heat of an epic battle against the tree gods. My friend Vicky is on the roof getting ready to launch herself onto Johnny's face, getting ready to claim her WWF World Championship title. Everything is perfect. Everything is in place. And then suddenly, my mom yells out the window, Catherine Marie, get your butt in here and clean your room right now. What? Mom, I'm in the middle of something important. This close to getting Tina to eat a worm. This close. Fine. I'll go. So I stomp inside. I don't look at my mom. I just stomp. And I go up the stairs and I go into my room and I'm totally overwhelmed by this tornado called me that has just destroyed my room. And I immediately regret my Barbie addiction at this time. Christmas time is another story. You know, I'm going to ask for that Barbie. You can guarantee it. But this moment, I am regretting it. My sister and I actually shared a room, so it was double the mess. Um, she was more the quiet, silent, intelligent, liked to read books. You know, her, her angst was more inward and well mine was not uh so she never really joined me in the in the festivities outside but we somehow managed to put our heads together and come up with the most brilliant idea ever why don't we just shove everything we own under the bed brilliant so fast, so efficient. Mom will never know. So we do. We literally got on our bellies and shoved everything under the bed. Everything, all of our treasures under the bed. And my mom comes up and she plays along in our little game. Oh, Wow, this is so clean. What a nice job, girls. She's walking over towards the bed. My sister and I are looking at each other like, don't move. Don't say anything. And my mom's like, oh, you guys, wow, this is clean. And then at this point, her voice is starting to elevate just a little bit. She's like, how nice of you to shove everything under the bed. And she starts pulling it out, everything. Just, just, we just spent all of this time working so hard, pushing it under the bed. And she pulls it all out from under the bed. So, needless to say, 
in fear of never seeing the light of day again, we cleaned our room. And we cleaned it right. So our room appeared clean at first, but we could not hide the truth from my mother. We couldn't. She knew us too well. She knew us best to know better that we had cleaned our room in like 10 minutes, you know. You guys have been there, right? I'm sure. Maybe not totally like that, okay? Maybe you weren't like fighting tree gods and, you know, someone's jumping off the roof. And But similar situations, I could imagine. And today we're going to talk about cleaning house. Things are not always as we make them seem, but God knows us better. He knows us best. So we're going to look at Luke 11, 14 through 28. We'll read through it once, and then we'll go verse by verse um, and see what God has to say. So, starting with verse 14. Jesus was driving out a demon that was mute. When the demon left, the man who had been mute spoke, and the crowd was amazed. But some of them said, By Beelzebul, the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. Others tested him by asking for a sign from heaven. Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, Any kingdom divided against itself will be ruined, and a house divided against itself will fall. If Satan is divided against himself, how can his kingdom stand? I say this because you claim that I drive out demons by Beelzebul. Now if I drive out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your followers drive them out? So then, they will be your judges. But if I drive out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own house, his possessions are safe. But when someone stronger attacks and overpowers him, he takes away the armor in which the man trusted and divides up his plunder. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. When an impure spirit comes out of a person, it goes through arid places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to the house I left. When it arrives, it finds the house swept clean and put in order. Then it goes and takes seven other spirits more wicked than itself, and they go in and live there. And the final condition of that person is worse than the first. As Jesus was saying these things, a woman in the crowd called out, Blessed is the mother who gave you birth and nursed you. He replied, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and obey it. Now, I think this is my third time preaching on something uh, with demon possession. I asked if um, they were giving me Larry's role, you know, of preaching on this stuff, you know. But I don't mind it. I don't mind it. Maybe that's why. Um, but it's, it's very interesting, and there's a lot of little nuggets in here that you might be like, okay, what does that mean? So we're going to go through it, and to the best of my ability and what I know, um, we'll ch- try to learn some stuff. Verse 14, Jesus was driving out a demon that was mute. When the demon left, the man who had been mute spoke, and the crowd was amazed. So we know in our study of Luke the past several months that this is not the first exorcism that Jesus has performed. Jesus is actually uh, pretty famous at this point. 
There are two other records of this particular exorcism in Matthew and Mark. And actually, Matthew has it twice, one brief and one more detailed account. But from this verse in Luke, we can gather that the demon is an inhibitor, causing the man to be mute. The demon is powerful enough to cause this man to be mute. But Jesus overcame that power and was able to drive him out, and the crowd was amazed. Um, We don't know how large the crowd was. We can assume that it was pretty large. Just in a few chapters earlier, in chapter 8, it was the feeding of the 5,000. And I think Jesus had a pretty large following most of the time. So I am imagining a pretty large crowd. The word amazed, that could mean various things. Um, They could have been amazed because of Jesus' techniques. They were a little bit unusual. Exorcists of his time used various objects or apparatuses, ritualistic jargon, and even people to expel demons. But Jesus used none of that. People could have been shocked. I mean, this amazing, they could have just been shocked at this, even dumbfounded. And some, some may have been in a reverent awe of what is happening, of this miracle of like, whoa, this just happened. We don't know, but we are about to see some varied reactions and how Jesus responds to them. In verse 15, but some of them said, by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. Beelzebul, or some translations say Beelzebub, is actually referred to a couple other times in scripture. Um, it was kind of a, a Canaanite god, a fertility god was the name, but it is a common expression to be understood as Satan. So they're accusing Jesus of driving demons out by the power of Satan. The other accounts of this story in Matthew and Mark say it is the Pharisees and the lawmakers who make this accusation. Um, We know at this point, if it is the Pharisees that are making this claim, they're getting pretty annoyed with Jesus. Um, they're, They're getting kind of edgy, you know. I don't think from what we know about the Pharisees that they actually believe this claim. I don't think that they really think he's driving them out by Satan because I think they're smarter than that. Um, And actually, at the end of this chapter, Luke 11, 53 through 54, it says, When Jesus went outside, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law began to oppose him fiercely and to besiege him with questions, waiting to catch him in something he might say. So I believe that as the Pharisees are getting pretty annoyed um, and insecure about their positions, they are trying to confuse those around them. They're trying to put fear into people around them. But we don't know. Luke doesn't say that it is the Pharisees in this particular chunk We can't assume from the other accounts that it is the Pharisees. I think that Luke doesn't uh, specify because, well, we're all messed up. It wasn't just the Pharisees who opposed Jesus, and it still isn't just Pharisee-like people who opposed Jesus. So I like that Luke 
didn't specify. In verse 16, others tested him by asking for a sign from heaven. Here's a different reaction, not necessarily bad, but they're skeptical. These people want proof. And we know from history of God's people, this isn't the first time people have asked for a sign. In 1 Samuel, the people cried out to God to save them, and God showed up in thunder and lightning, and yet they still forgot. And they still didn't remember this huge sign from heaven. And it won't be the last. I know that myself, I'm sure you guys have asked for God, from God, a sign. God, just prove to me that you're real. I want a sign. I want proof. And meanwhile, signs are like all around us. Verse 17 and 18, Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, any kingdom divided against itself will be ruined and a house divided against itself will fall. If Satan is divided against himself, how can his kingdom stand? I say this because you claim that I drive out demons by Beelzebul. So here we begin we begin to get Jesus's response to the reaction. We go from third person to first. And Jesus, knowing their thoughts in and of itself, shows his divine power. Whether he heard their accusations audibly as they said it or not, he knew their intentions. He knew their heart. So however large this crowd was, whether it was some people in the very back, let's imagine it's 5,000 people, and Jesus didn't hear it, he still knew their thoughts. If he heard it, he still knew their thoughts. So I don't, I just wanted to point that out. Um, he knew their hearts. I mean, how many times has someone asked you, does this dress make me look fat? And you say, no, but secretly think, yes. I have never thought that about someone. That's just mean. I've never. Okay, maybe not that particular scenario, but there are situations where you, you maybe tell a little lie and you're thinking something else. I mean, God knows our hearts, right? The intention sometimes is different than what we verbalize. So Jesus responds to the claim. Basically, like if a king sends someone to their enemy, says, you know what, I want you to go to my enemy, give him our attack plan, give him all of our secret information, just go, tell him everything. I mean, that's, that's absurd, right? That would, he's planning his own demise. He's, you know, saying, well, I don't, all right. That's fine. It's not going to stand. That kingdom will fall. And in the same liking, if in a household, if you have a mother and a father or parents who have totally different views on raising their child, on life goals, maybe one is for Jesus, the other is not, it's not going to work. It's divided. So why would Satan against his own kingdom it just it just doesn't make sense and jesus is pointing that out in verse 19 and 20 now if i drive out demons by beelzebul by whom do your followers drive them out jesus is addressing the hypocrisy here if it is the pharisees he's addressing which we're fairly certain he is 
then Jesus could be referring to their students or even to the disciples as they too have been driving out demons. It says, so then they will be your judges. This meaning they're going to keep you accountable. You can't have it both ways. You can't be doing the same thing and yet it'd be different for you. Verse 20, but if I drive out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. The phrase finger of God is nothing new here. They've heard it before. Um, If there are Pharisees in this crowd, um, they're pretty well learned on the scriptures. So this phrase they've heard before. They've heard it when the plagues hit Pharaoh and the Egyptians in Exodus 8. 19, the magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God, but Pharaoh's heart was hard and he would not listen just as the Lord had said. They'd heard it then. And then also in the stone tablets, the 10 commandments were formed. I mean, the power of God is amazing. All it needs is just the finger of God to call this demon out. And humbly, Jesus isn't focusing on the miracle or the healing He's saying, the kingdom of God has come upon you if you believe. Do you believe the kingdom of God rests upon you today, now? Do you know the difference between going through a hard situation with the kingdom resting upon you versus not? Hope versus hopelessness? It's a peace in knowing that God has you. That he has a plan for you. When for six years, Aaron and I thought we couldn't have children, I prayed to God to heal me. To make it happen. And when I said, well, maybe we'll adopt. Maybe this isn't going to happen. I didn't lose the kingdom perspective. I kept praying. And I had peace in knowing that God had a plan no matter what. Peace doesn't mean that I felt good about it. In John 16.33, it says, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. It doesn't mean that I, I didn't cry out to God. I did acknowledge God and his power in my life and over my life. And I'm not saying if you're infertile in your body, if you're infertile in your job, infertile in your relationships, that there's a formula to follow and that God will give birth to what you want always. I am saying when you believe in his power, your faith perspective changes. Verse 21 and 22, Jesus goes into a story. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own house, his possessions are safe. But when someone stronger attacks and overpowers him, he takes away the armor in which the man trusted and divides up his plunder. Here Jesus is alluding to Satan. Satan guards his house and thinks he's safe, but Jesus' power is superior. Jesus came to save the world from Satan's strongholds, to deliver us from our sin and our mistakes, 
to redeem us. When Jesus called that mute demon out, that man's body was redeemed. When Jesus captivates our hearts and we yield to him, he claims the victory. The victory. Jesus disarmed Satan and took back what was always his. I think we're also like that first strong man, trusting in our own armor and guarding our little bubbles, security nets that we've created. And we've just got to let Jesus strip us down of what we fill our voids with. And we have to surrender to him and let him fill our void. Verse 23 says, whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. This is where Jesus draws the line. There is no middle, there's no neutral ground. You're either sold out for Jesus or you're not. There are a lot of different reactions to Jesus in this passage, and there's a lot of different reactions to Jesus today. I'm sure you can think of many on your own. Um, We have social activist Jesus. We have buddy Jesus. We have tattoo Jesus, which is my favorite, actually. We have Jesus as a word when we stub our toe. So you're either for Jesus or not. But I don't want you to be bummed out. I'm not here to put guilt on you or shame you. If you're not for Jesus, it doesn't have to stay that way. I mean, our faith is fluid. It grows with each experience. The more we get to know God, our faith perspective begins to change. All you have to do is start with acknowledging him, and I think he'll take you from there. Jesus goes into another story. When an impure spirit comes out of a person, it goes through arid places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to the house I left. When it arrives, it finds the house swept clean and put in order. Then it goes and takes seven other spirits more wicked than itself, and they go in and live there. And the final condition of that person is worse than the first. If you're like me and you read this, your first reaction is, what? does that mean does that mean if i cast out a demon seven more are going to come that's crazy that is not appealing i do not want to even touch that with a 10-foot pole no thanks i don't think that's the point of this story i don't think jesus is trying to put fear into people i don't think he's even saying this is a formula of what will happen when someone is demon possessed i think rather The main point is verse 25. At least to me, this is what sticks out. When it arrives, it finds the house swept clean and put in order. The demon came out, but that person didn't fill the void. It was empty. That person didn't do anything. They just made it look pretty. They tried to make it look good. If it's not genuine or we fill it with other things... I mean, what's the point? Romans 12.1 says, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. 
Jesus is worthy of our life. Verse 27 and 28. As Jesus was saying these things, a woman in the crowd called out, Blessed is the mother who gave you birth and nursed you. He replied, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and obey it. So here's another reaction from the crowd. This woman pays such a lovely compliment to Mary, the mother of Jesus. What a nice Christian thing to say. Isn't that? Blessed is your mother who nursed you, birthed you. Jesus isn't saying, no, you're wrong about my mother. He doesn't say that. (laughs) That would be terrible if he did, I think. But instead, he's redirecting the focus to God and the blessings that we receive by having relationship with him. We cannot hear the word of God and obey it without first acknowledging him. You can't. 1 John 5, 1 through 5. I had to put the whole five. I, there was no one that I wanted to pick out. Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. Oh, that's, that's not right. Mm-mm. It's First John, not John. Well, let me, let me find it. I want to read it. I want to read it. There we go. There we go. Bear with me. It's always good with just a little awkwardness. Keeps everyone on their toes. Anyone who is snoring can be like, what's going on? What's she talking about? All right, 1 John 5, 1 through 5. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves his child as well. This is how we know that we love the children of God, by loving God and carrying out his commands. In fact, this is love for God, to keep his commands, and his commands are not burdensome. For everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. So it's not a burden to have these disciplines, to hear God's word and obey it. And disciplines are good. Such as reading our Bibles, praying, going to church. I encourage you guys to go to the How to Read Our Bible class on Saturday. I think that's awesome. I do have to say that if you're doing it for the wrong intentions, if you're not doing it because you want to grow in your relationship with God, because you want to know him, you want to draw closer to him. It's not him drawing closer to you. He's as near as he's going to get. He is everywhere. So he's not going to draw closer to you. It's acknowledging his nearness. And if you're not doing that, then I got to say, what's the point? What is the point in even disciplining? Discipline is for change, for growth. And again, I'm, our faith is fluid, you know. Thankfully, it grows. If you're not in it today, it doesn't mean you won't be in it tomorrow. 
And in fact, there are days that I'm not in it. When people ask me, how are you doing? How's it going? I'm like, well, with this breath and this moment, I feel fine. The next breath and the next moment, I'm not like bipolar, but I mean, sometimes I am, you know, but I'm just saying like it changes and I'm glad that he gives us the grace to let it change. As far as cleaning your room, it's simple. You just have to let God do it. I think the gospel is simple. I think Jesus' message is simple. I think we want to complicate things. Even in preparing this message, I thought, this isn't complex enough. (laughs) I've got to give them some more meat. I've got to give them something more to think on. But why do I have to complicate things? Why do I have to... Why do I have to make it something that it's not? If you're waiting for everything to look perfect, I think you're going to be waiting a long time. This morning there was that song, um, and, it, and, and it says, If you tarry until you're better, you may never come at all. So don't wait. Don't think that everything needs to be a certain way or everything needs to be in place. I mean, we come as we are, and thankfully, we can come as we are. And it just starts with acknowledging him. And I really, I promise you, he'll meet you and he'll take you the rest of the way. We're going to have prayer in the prayer cave tonight. And I don't know. I think that honesty is so important. You don't have to go there. You have, you have the right to choose. We have the right. I'm not talking about just the prayer cave. I mean, but in life in general, you have the right to choose to be for God or not. Thank you guys for your head nods of affirmation. Um, but just just start with talking to God. And I'm going to pray right now. Because I like prayer. At least in this moment, I like it. And then we can pray some more in the prayer cave. God, I'm so thankful that you're near. And that I really don't have to do anything. I don't deserve your grace. I don't deserve it. But yet you say we're your most treasured possession. Your love is like no other love, God. And I'm thankful, beyond thankful, that I get to be a part of it. Help me to be honest with myself, with you, with others. And Lord, just help us to connect with you as raw as we can. I thank you that we get to connect with you. Be with us this week, tonight, within this very moment, that we can engage with you in a raw, genuine, honest way, God. I love you so much, but you did love me first. Thanks. Amen.